You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We are kicking off a brand new series called John, A Case to Believe, and we're going to be looking at the book of John, the gospel. Now, there are four uh, books in the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament, they're called gospels. They are stories that retell, recount the life of Jesus, and John is the fourth one. Most people believe that the apostle John, one of his 12 disciples, one of the apostles, was actually the author of this book. He was a brother. He had a brother named James. They were called James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Now you can imagine what, where that nickname came from. Some think it may have had to do with their kind of passionate style of preaching. But I am kind of one who leans more toward it was character-based. And by that I give you what Luke writes in Luke 9... He says this about about them. It says, when the days drew near for him, he's talking about Jesus here, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now that tells you a little bit about James and John. Things don't go the way that they think it should, and they're like, hey, let's just nuke this place. You give the word, Lord, we'll pray, and fire, boom, and these Samaritans, faint memory. Yeah, they have a little penchant for the kind of the rough and tumble. That's probably more about where their nickname came from. John has a great vantage point for telling the story of Jesus. He's right there. The closeness that John had with Jesus made him one of his inner circle. It was Peter and then James and John, the sons of thunder. They were the kind of the, the big three with Jesus, the inner, the inner circle of the twelve. And if the Bible identifies one disciple who was the closest to Jesus, it's undoubtedly the apostle John, the writer of this book. He, uh, he regularly refers to himself in this gospel as the beloved disciple. Now, this reference is not an expression of pride. as you know, like, hey, he loves me best, you know, I'm his favorite. It wasn't that at all. In fact, this, this phrase that he uses, beloved disciple, is actually an expression of deep humility and thankfulness on the part of John. What he's basically saying here is, Jesus loves me, even me. Even me. So why John write the book? Why did he write it? He wrote it to a new Christians, I think to encourage them, and to those who were not Christians yet who were searching, to give them something to chew on, something to work with. He wrote it in the first century when he lived to testify to all of those new Christians as well as those who were searching who Jesus was. He wanted them to know his experience. There is one major theme that runs throughout the the gospel that John wrote, and it is simply this. And if you only get one thing today, please get this, okay? Jesus is the Son of God. This is John's theme. Jesus is the Son of God, and if you commit yourself to him, he will give you eternal life. 
Jesus is the Son of God, and if you commit yourself to Him, He will give you eternal life. There's a lot more that goes into this story, but if there was one kind of thread that runs all the way through this, John gives us this main theme. In John, the 20th chapter, verse 31, at the, near the end of his, of his gospel, John kind of summarizes the, the scriptures that he's written. And this is what he says. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the summary right there. This is why I wrote this book, John says. John wanted people to know the facts about Jesus. He was an eyewitness to what he wrote about. And he wanted people to know that if they would believe that Jesus was the Messiah who came to set them free, he would forgive their sins and he would give them hope for eternity. Our study begins right at the beginning. That's where you would normally think we would start, right? And there is a portion that we're going to look at this morning of Scripture, the first 18 verses, that most scholars refer to as the prologue of his gospel. Now, the prologue is a literary term that means introduction or introductory statement. That's what this is. John's prologue seems to be written kind of to summarize, if you will, and specifically introduce us to Jesus and his works. So, in the prologue, what John is going to do for us, we'll look at it this morning, he's going to lay out for us a summary of the entire book right here in these first 18 verses. With the goal that in the end, that the reader who reads this gospel will come to a point that what John writes about, they believe to be true as well. And John's testimony is continuing to ripple down through the centuries. It's 2,000 years ago, and we're still talking about it today. So, in the prologue, there are three, what I, have, what I refer to as vital truths that John wants us to know. I mean, if there are some high peaks that John wants us to recognize, that these are some significant significant truths in the gospel. He spotlights them here in the first 18 verses. And the first one of these, uh, this, this is, these, these key truths, these vital truths, will, are substantiated throughout the gospel, okay? But he gives us a peek into what's to come here in the first 18 verses of what we call a prologue. The very first of these vital truths is probably the most important of all of them. Maybe the most important truth in all of Scripture. And that is this. Jesus is God. See, if you recognize that Jesus is God, if you understand, if you come to believe that, it changes everything you know about Him. Everything you know about Him. And John brings it out right in the very first verse. Look what he says in John 1.1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. When you and I use words, we use them, we say them, we, we think certain words, we even write certain words, and we do that in order to communicate with other people information. Some of that information is personal. It's like, what's in my heart, or what am I thinking about? And I want to communicate that to people. So choosing your words uh, wisely to speak what you want to say or what you want to write. 
It's kind of the downfall of social media. A lot of people will say things that they would never say in, in person, but they have this uh, boldness behind, you know, some kind of cyber firewall somewhere. But listen, we know what you're saying because you printed it and we're reading it. Stop. <laughs> At least think about it a little bit. When God gives us this metaphor that Jesus is the Word, you know, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He's given us kind of an insight into this messaging, if you will. Jesus is God's Word, come to reveal God's heart and His thinking to all of humanity. John says right out of the gate, the first point that he wants to make, the first evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, the first statement is this simple one. The Word was God. This is a bold claim, but John saw it all, and he believes that if you read this, the Word, play along with me, the metaphor of Jesus being the Word, well, John is writing out in words the story of Jesus. If you believe what he writes in this book, if you evaluate the evidence that he gives you, and you come to the same conclusion that John came to, you will see that Jesus was God. He was the Word of God. He was God. In John 14, 9, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John records that. He wants people to recognize the simple reality that if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus was called the Word because He embodied the heart and the mind of God. Jesus embodied the heart and mind of God because He was God. It was easy for Him to do that. He wasn't the messenger of God's Word. He wasn't the messenger of God's, God's teaching. He was God. We read in uh, verse 2 that there's this second evidence of Jesus as God. John writes, He was with God in the beginning. So he repeats what he said in verse 1, that Jesus was there when it all began. He existed at the beginning of the, uh, at the universe because second attribute of his deity is that Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. He doesn't have a beginning time. He doesn't have an ending time. He always was, which is a key attribute that Jesus is God. It links him, it links him as God. And then John gives another attribute of the deity of Jesus in verse 3. He says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In verse 3, he reveals that Jesus is able to create, which is another evidence that Jesus is God. John points out, the phrase he uses there, all things were made. That phrase, were made, he's talking about all things. All things were made. That phrase, all things, excuse me, refers to the entire universe. That phrase encompasses everything. So if you created the universe, that sounds like a job that only God could do. And John is saying, he was there, he was part of it. There's a fourth, there's a fourth uh, evidence here that Jesus is God. And I'm going to have to explain it to you in just a minute. But he says, it's, it's simply this evidence, Jesus overcomes darkness. And we see this in verses 4 and 5 of the text. Let me read this to you and then we'll talk about it in just a minute. 
In him was life. And life is a key, it's a key term here in this text. John uses some, some consistent themes, and he's introducing them to us in the prologue. Life is one of those key themes. He uses this word 36 times in the entire Gospel of John. That's a lot. So we look for trends like that when you study the Scripture. And you use a word like that numerous times, it's something he's, it's, it's a theme that he has. So he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Another key theme. We'll talk about that in a minute. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, when he talks about life here, this is a key theme, as I said, in John's gospel. He uses it quite a bit. And when we think about human life, you may not realize this, but there are basically only four things that you have to have to have human life, existence. First is you have to have air. You have to have water. You have to have food. And fourth, you have to have light. Most of us probably didn't think about light being part of the essential makeup of what you have to have in order to sustain life. But if the sun goes out, life ends. It's that simple. Jesus, John writes about Jesus in John 8. This is what he says in John 8. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a common theme of John's. This idea of comparing and contrasting light with darkness. And John wants us to know that Jesus overcomes the darkness. Because light overcomes darkness. Jesus is the light. When I was a a student at Cincinnati Bible College a long time ago now... Um, I had a friend who was renting a house um, in, in the Cincinnati Price Hill area, and it was an old house, I mean, like over 100 years old. In fact, if you went into the basement, they didn't have, they didn't have cinder blocks, or, or they just had old stones that made the actual foundation of this house. It was kind of creepy and cool at the same time, okay? And so my friend invited us all over to his house so that we, uh, adults, at that uh, that's a loose term, I think, you know, when you're a college, 19-year-old college student. But adults to play hide-and-seek in his basement, okay? And this is what's so cool about this basement. I, I have told you about this once before, but I, I want you to understand. What was really, really cool about this basement was when you shut the lights off in there, you could not see anything. You could not see your hand in front of your face. So we would go in, we would find a hiding place, and then they would shut the lights off, and the person who was it had to kind of just, you know, if you walked straight around, you would walk into one of those limestone walls. I'm not kidding. That would be funny, really, I thought. But we would go in there, and so we went down there to play, and it was really, I, I found the perfect hiding place. It was against, there was a wall here, a little, little short wall, and then the furnace was right here. It was a gas furnace. And I, I just kind of stepped back into that, and I thought, nobody's ever going to find me. If I can not breathe when they come in the room, I'll be fine, right? And so I was hiding there, and I was, I was thinking how great a hider I am and how neat it was. And then all of a sudden, the furnace kicked on. And those little burners, they're only, the flames were only like this tall, right? I don't know how many there were, but there were, there were enough to light the entire room up, you know? So what was such a great hiding place? Now I'm less like a dude standing in the corner, you know? 
And what was hilarious was the guy had just been in our room. And he's going, I know you're in here. He's trying to make us laugh so he can find us and everything. And he goes away. And then the furnace comes on. And then, then it goes off again. And then he comes back through. You know, I was the luckiest hide-and-go-seeker in the, in, the in the whole game. Here's this. He never found me. But what I thought was a perfect hiding place was a lousy hiding place when the lights come on. And that's what light does. It drives out darkness. You never hear about darkness driving out the light. It's the opposite. The metaphor works only when light drives out darkness. It reveals what is hidden in the darkness. Me standing in the corner. It was pretty obvious when the, when the furnace went on. There I was. That's what, that's what Jesus does. He comes in and he reveals the things that we're hiding in the dark places of our lives. Just as the first creation began with the phrase, let there be light, the new creation begins with the entrance of God's light into our hearts as believers. Jesus is God. That's the first key, the first key truth, vital truth that we need. The second is this, and this may need a little explanation here. But the, the next vital truth, the second vital truth is John the Baptist and others testified about Jesus. They testified about Jesus. Through John's gospel, the apostle John and others will testify about the facts of what they saw, what they experienced with Jesus. The first to testify was a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to announce to the world that the light had arrived. The Messiah was here. That was his job. Look what John writes about in John, the first chapter, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a, hu a husband's will, but born of God. John the Baptist was the first to publicly proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the first to publicly proclaim that he's here. This is him. That's him. Now, the word that John uses to describe John the Baptist is the word witness. And that's, again, another one of these themes that John is, is introducing to us in the prologue. He uses the word witness a number of times. And that word, uh, that word he uses 14 times as a noun and 33 times as a verb. That's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a, a whole lot. He's talking about witnesses and witnessing a lot. John the Baptist is one of many who John's going to talk about through this entire gospel, who gave witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. These are eyewitness testimonies that Jesus is the Son of God. John says in verses 10 through 13, which we just read, Jesus came into the world that he had created, but his own people, Israel, who'd been waiting on him and looking for the Messiah for centuries, they could not understand him. And thus they didn't receive him. 
They saw his works, they heard his teachings, they saw his perfect life, and he gave them every opportunity to grasp the truth and be saved, but they wouldn't believe in him. In fact, in John 12, John says this about this whole experience. Even after Jesus had performed many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Still. Skeptics of Jesus today don't have to commit the same mistakes that the people of Israel did in the first century. It's because John gave us all of these testimonies about Jesus. And then John gives us what I think is this awesome promise from God that anyone can become part of the family of God. What better news is there than the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, makes space for us to be part of his family. That's what he says there in in verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus is God. John's going to give us a whole bunch of testimonies of vitally important to, to explaining this truth about Jesus. And then... Third, the third and final vital truth found here in the prologue is, is found in verse 14. Let's, let's read this here. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The third vi- vital truth is found in verse 14 is Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, this is one of probably the most profound passages in all of the Bible. The Word, the logos is the Greek word, the Word who was God became flesh. He became a human being. He lived for a while among us so that people could see his glory, John says. So John points out some evidences here that reveal that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary guy you know, just an ordinary human being, but he was actually God in the flesh. And the first evidence that he gives us is about glory. It says Jesus revealed his glory. Now, what is that? What is glory? You'll hear people talk about glory, the glory of God, God's glory. Some of it has to do with worship. But Unger's Bible Dictionary defines glory this way. It says it's the manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections. His glory is more about what he does that illustrates he is God than it is about what we do or say about him. His glory would have been the things that he did that only God could have done. And the first time that Jesus revealed his glory was when he performed his very first miracle at a wedding feast in Cana. Look what John writes in John 2. This is, I thought was real insightful. What Jesus did here in Cana, in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So he did these miracles so that people could see his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, I'm going to make the assumption that their belief in him was somewhat tepid, maybe even absent, but he does a miracle and suddenly they're scratching their heads going, this may be the Messiah. You know, they're not saying it out loud, but they're saying it kind of out of the side of their mouths to each other. This dude, he may, he's the God. He's the guy. The prophets, that's it's him. I'm telling you, it's him. They started to believe in him. 
They started to trust him. Jesus turned the water into wine, and his disciples start to put their faith in him. But that's not that's not it. That's, that's just the beginning. He started healing people. People who were blind. People who were deaf. People who were infirmed. People who had uh, leprosy. He cleansed their skin. He not only did that, but he calmed a storm on, a, on the sea. It went to completely still. He walked on water. He actually, he actually cast out demons out of people who were possessed by demons. And if all of that wasn't enough, then he started raising the dead back to life. He started, he started showing his glory. His glory was a testimony of his deity because Jesus was God in the flesh. Well, then we read in verses 16 and 17, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The next evidence that this was not just an ordinary man. It was that Jesus revealed his mission. And his mission was pretty supernatural. You see, he he wasn't just a man. He was God. And he was thus perfect. And you have to have a perfect sacrifice in order to save man from their sins. And Jesus would start to share about the grace of God and his reason for coming. John wasn't saying that there wasn't grace in the Old Testament because there was. Every time there was a sacrifice, that was an expression of the grace of God. But you didn't have to have a priest now. We have a, we have a heavenly priest. We didn't have to bring sacrifices every week or at certain feasts during the year. We have the one and true, pure sacrifice in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, grace and truth reach their fullness and it was made available to you and me. People didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God said, you know what? I'm making a space for you and my family. I want to extend to you this grace. If you choose to accept it, surrender to me. You, you can be part of this family. John hinted that this entire, there was an entirely new, different system that was coming in to enhance the Mosaic law. And then he gives us the third evidence that he wasn't just an ordinary guy, that he was God in the flesh. Jesus revealed God to us. Now, why is that important? You know what? I can't introduce you to somebody I don't know. But Jesus introduces us to his heavenly Father because, well, hang with me, but they're, they're the same one. He knows him, but he is him. And that's for another sermon someday. But we read in verse 18. Look what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. God is invisible. We can see the effects of God in nature or we can read about the awesome works of God from history But we cannot actually see God himself. Then Jesus comes to earth in the flesh. He comes in human form and he reveals God to us. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word translated here, made known. When he says he made the Father known to us, 
That's where we get our English word exegesis. And that means to explain or to unfold or to lead the way to understanding. That, what John points out here is that Jesus explains God to us. He introduces us to us and he helps us understand him. He leads the way to this understanding. We simply cannot know God without knowing Jesus. Oh, you might know a little bit about God, but you will never truly know God until you get to know Jesus. So those three vital truths, they kind of make up the crux of the prologue. That's the prologue. John's case to believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now the question is, why, what's the big deal about the Messiah? I mean, why do we need a Messiah? So the Old Testament predicted that he was coming, but why do we need him? I want to take just a minute here to explain to you why I think this is vitally important to all of us. If we are left to our sin and we have no Redeemer, no one to intercede on our behalf, we stand under the judgment of a holy God. God is compelled by His perfection of His character to condemn us because of sin. He can have nothing to do with us because of our sin. It separates us. Death is not a hypothetical possibility to us. It is our sure and certain penalty, a concrete reality for you and me in sin. But praise God, he has provided Jesus to intercede for us. John tells us the story of Jesus, how he came to stand in the gap for you and me. Because of his sacrifice, God relents his wrath toward us when we accept his grace. Can anybody say amen to that? Yeah, thank you. God sent Jesus to intercede. And he is raising up others who will also intercede to tell others about Jesus so that the wrath is averted and his salvation is made known to all. He's not raising up other messiahs. He's raising up people who will carry the message just like John so that others might know through their testimony. He's raising up you. Do you see the picture? Is it starting to come into into clear view, the reason that we need a Messiah, the reason Jesus came. We must realize that God's wrath will be poured out on millions and millions of people across this world, people who are our neighbors, our co-workers, our f- people who we go to school with, people who we don't even know all around the world, people that we go to restaurants and rub shoulders with there, people we see regularly at, at UK ball games, people who we go to the mall with and shop, people all around us every single day. Right now, they are under the wrath of God. On a road that leads to an eternal hell. And I know it's not a popular topic in our modern culture. We want to talk about the grace of God and it's vitally important. But the truth is, why do we need a Messiah? Because hell is real. And I don't want anyone within my capacity to make any difference in their life. I do not want anyone to have to go there. Recognize the reality of God's wrath and then realize the role that you and I have been given to play in saving those folks from experiencing God's wrath. As a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, 
If you've taken on that name, you've surrendered your heart to Jesus, realize that God has put you where you are for a reason. He has put you in that office for a reason. He has put you on that campus, in that dorm room for a reason. He has put you and your family in that neighborhood for a reason. God loves the people around you so much that he designed you in such a way that your life would be a way in which the salvation of his grace would flow from you to them, that they, would be, they could be known by God through surrendering to Jesus and thus saving them from the wrath that right now they face. So if you know someone who's not part of the family of God, will you pray for them? Will you plead before God for his mercy in their lives, that they would come to their senses and realize the need that they have for Jesus. Will you share the love and grace of God with them? Maybe you just write their name down, those of you taking notes. Just write their name down on your program. There may be a number of you. Some of you may be the only Christian in your family. Maybe the only Christian at the place where you work. You may have a whole list of people. Hey, pray for them, because the wrath of God is on them unless they repent and surrender to Jesus. There are 7.2 billion people on the planet. And the most liberal of estimates say that about one-third of all those people that live on the planet Earth are Christians. And that is the most liberal. I mean, that includes people who simply say, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. Or they're socially kind of Christians, or it's, a, it's kind of a political identification as a Christian. Even if we assume that all the one-third of the world's population are fully devoted followers of Jesus that would stand up and represent him, that would still leave four and a half billion, with a B, People who are not in the family of God. And two billion of those people have never heard the name of Jesus. They've never had anyone tell them how they can go to heaven. Nobody. If that's true, that there's four and a half billion people that need Jesus, I don't know about you, but we got to do something. We can't just stand by and let people go straight to hell without at least making some effort. I know we can't save all four and a half billion people, but what if we saved a handful? Would it matter to them? I think it would. So, you and I, we're a lot like the Apostle Paul in this sense, all right? We have the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. Now, you and I are probably not like the Apostle Paul in the sense that he was an apostle, but I'm, you know, but... But we do have the same opportunity. We can give a testimony about Jesus. We can share what he means to us, and we can do it here as well as with technology. We can do it all around the world. So that's what we're gonna, I want to talk to you about just for one second, and then I'll pray. The Seed Company is a mission organization that um, works with churches to assist in the translation of the Bible, kind of matching up churches with uh, translation projects. And we've been talking with them for a while. There are 200 million people in the world right now that do not have the Bible in their own heart language. Okay? That's the language that they think in, that they dream in. They speak other languages probably, and their Bible is maybe in one of those, but it's not in their heart language. And so the seed company works with churches. There are 1,778 languages still that don't have the Bible translated in it. 
kind of hard to believe. But we are getting closer to that point when all the, all the languages on the planet will have access to the Bible. Well, through a partnership with a seed company, we're going to be working to help with the translation of the Gospel of John, the book that we're studying right now, for a group called the Wanchi Language Group. Wanchi. Write that down on your, even if you're not taking notes, will you write that down? You'll know why here in just a moment. The Wanchi is a, is a group in southern Nepal. Now, Wanchi is not actually the name of a language. It's a code phrase, it's a code name that's been given it to so that people who are working on this project can do so in safety in that, in that region. We're going to accomplish this through a project that's called Adoptiverse. You may remember last uh, year, at the, near the end of the year, back in December, I made a mention of this. I, just, I told you, you don't want to miss what we're going to do in, the, in January of 2017. This is what I'm talking about. The Adoptiverse is a program that helps a church to underwrite the translation of the gospel, and in our case, the gospel of John. You do it by sponsoring a verse. It's really simple. There are 879 verses in John, and the cost to translate one verse, they've broken it all down, is $35. It's a deal, you know? So if you do the math... Those of you that can do this in your head, I did the work for us. It's, it's $30,765 to translate the Gospel of John into a language that's never had the Gospel of John or any, any verse of the Bible. How cool is that? We can, put the, we can put the Gospel, the testimony about Jesus from the Apostle John into the hands of some people who've never heard of him. And it may change. It could change. It will change the eternal destiny of some. So next Sunday, we're going to be in the lobby and we're going to have these, these standards up out there where A-frame kind of stands with the Bible uh, verses from the Gospel of John printed out. And all, every verse will be printed out there. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to come in and we'll get to sponsor. We just sign up here on the side. We'll sponsor that verse, and then we'll, we'll pay our $35. Now, I, listen, this isn't about money. If, if it is about money, please don't, please just pray, okay? Don't, don't feel like, oh, money wants something. I don't, I don't, money makes this thing happen, but I don't want that to be the issue here. I would love for everybody in here, so I'll take one verse. 879, if every one of us did it on a good Sunday, that would be done. One verse. Now, some of you are going to go, I want my favorite verse. And you're going to come in and then you go, oh, my goodness, Todd Ballard took my favorite verse. Hmm. I am not happy now. Mm-hmm. I lost the joy of the Lord because Todd Ballard took my favorite verse. Please recognize, in your heart, it can be your verse, okay? And regardless. What if we do this and it does actually change someone's life? You will be in heaven someday and someone will come up to you and they will say, thank you. Thank you for putting the gospel in my heart language so that I would come to know who Jesus was because it changed everything for me. I want to ask you to do one other thing in regard to this, and that is pray. Pray for the wanchy language people to come to know Christ. Will you intercede on their behalf and just plead to God that somebody 
out of that group would find Jesus. Will you pray for the translators and those who are the church planters who are actually going in in conjunction with this to plant churches in this same area? And will you pray for Phil Hurley and myself? Phil's our missions director, oversees our missions team here. He and I are going to Nepal at the end of February. Just pray for us. We'll be partnering with a pastor's conference that's there. And we're looking forward, hoping to meet the translators who are actually working on our seed project. More importantly, pray this project moves hearts. I think this has the potential to change eternity for thousands of people who otherwise would face the wrath of God. So let's make a difference. Let's make a difference in a real tangible way in expanding the population of heaven. You in for that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that as a small kid, somebody gave me a Bible, uh, and it was just standard. And my office has dozens and dozens of Bibles, different translations, some old and worn, some brand new. Lord, I, I, I just my heart is heavy for the fact that there are people around the world that don't even have the Bible in their language. They can, they can read it in other languages if they're knowledgeable of that, but they don't have a full understanding of what it means to, to understand you because they don't fully understand it. And so, Lord, I pray for this project that it would not be something that's about money, but it would be more about an investment in somebody else's eternity. That we could, we could give them the news about grace and what Jesus came to do to save them from their sins and they could they could avert the wrath of God in their life spend eternity with you as opposed to hell Lord help us to be part of that solution Lord I pray for everyone here that you would move in our hearts in this way but Lord I pray specifically for those that may be here that have never taken that step I pray that they would find today their heart is strangely warmed as they recognize their need for you and the love that you have for them. Lord, let them know how important they are to you and that you don't want them to miss out on eternity with you. Lord, I pray they'd have the courage to take that step today. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we expect great things, Lord. We expect to see heaven populated through people in Nepal because of what you do through this church in the days and weeks to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never uh, accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there are going to be some folks down front here who would love to talk to you about that. I want to challenge you to not wait one more day to put Jesus off. Take the step today. Avert the wrath of God in your life and accept him. Let's stand together. Let's worship him. Come if you have a desire in your heart.